Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Indian, he pulled the trigger, literally blowing out the savage's heart. Cropping his rifle, he wheels his trained horse, and drawing a pistol from his belt, he discharges the enemy, among whom Kilbuck and the stranger are dealing death blows. The Indians, panic-stricken by the suddenness of the attack, turn and flee, leaving several of their number dead upon the field. Mary, with her arms bound to her body by the lasso, and with her eyes closed to receive the fatal stroke, hears the defiant shout of Labant, and glancing up between her half-opened eyelids, sees the wild figure of the mountaineer as he sends the bullet to the heart of her foe. When the Indians flee, Labant, the first to run to her aid, cuts the skin-rope, raises her from the ground, looks long and intently in her face, and sees his never-to-be-forgotten Mary Chase. "'What? Can it be you, Mary?' he exclaims, gazing at the trembling maiden, who hardly believes her eyes as she returns his gaze and recognizes in her deliverer her former lover. She only sobs and clings closer to him in speechless gratitude and love. Turning from these lovers reunited so miraculously, we see stretched on the battlefield the two grandsons of Mr. Chase, fine lads of fourteen or fifteen, who after fighting like men fall dead, pierced with arrows and lances. Old Chase and his sons are slightly wounded, and Antoine shot through the neck and half scalped. The dead boys are laid tenderly beneath the prairie sod, the wounds of the others are dressed, and the following morning the party continue their journey to the plat. The three hunters guide and guard them on their way, Mary riding on horseback by the side of her lover. For many days they pursued their journey, but with feelings far different from those with which they had made its earlier stages. Old Mr. Chase marches on doggedly and in silence. His resolution to seek a new home on the banks of the Columbia has been shaken more by the loss of his grandsons than by the fatigues and privations incident to the march. The unbidden tears often steal down the cheeks of the women, who cast many a longing look behind them towards the southeastern horizon, far beyond whose purple rim lay their old home. The south fork of the Platte has been passed, Laramie reached, and for a fortnight the lofty summits of the mountains which overhang the pass to California have been in sight. But when they strike the broad trail which would conduct them to their promised land in the valley of the Columbia, the party pause gaze for a moment steadfastly at the mountain summits, and then, as if by a common impulse, the heads of the horses and oxen are faced to the east, and men, women, and children toss their hats and bonnets in the air, hurrahing lustily for home as the huge wagons roll down along the banks of the river Platte. 
The closing scene in this romantic melodrama was the marriage of Mary and Labonte in Tennessee, four months after the rescue of the Chase family from the Indians. The following, Romance of the Forest, we believe has never before been published. The substance of it was communicated to the writer by a gentleman who received it from his grandfather, one of the early settlers of Michigan. In the year 1762, the great Pontiac, the Indian Napoleon of the Northwest, had his headquarters in a small, secluded island at the opening of Lake St. Clair. Here he organized, with wonderful ability and secrecy, a wide-reaching conspiracy, having for its object the destruction of every English garrison and settlement in Michigan. His envoys, with blood-stained hatchets, had been dispatched to the various Indian tribes of the region, and wherever these emblems of butchery had been accepted, the savage hordes were gathering, and around their balefires in the midnight pantomimes of murder were concentrating their excitable natures into a burning focus which would light their path to carnage and rapine. While these lurid clouds, charged with death and destruction, were gathering, unseen, about the heads of the adventurous pioneers who had penetrated that beautiful region, a family of eastern settlers, named Rouse, arrived in the territory, and, disregarding the admonitions of the officers and the fort at Detroit, pushed on twenty miles farther west, and planted themselves in the heart of one of those magnificent oak openings, which the Almighty seems to have designed as parks and pleasure-grounds for the sons and daughters of the forest. Miss Anna Rouse, the only daughter of the family, had been betrothed before her departure from New York State to a young man named James Philbrick, who had afterward gone to fight the French and Indians. It was understood that upon his return he was to follow the Rouse family to Michigan, where upon his arrival the marriage was to take place. In a few months young Philbrick reached the appointed place, and in the following week married Miss Rouse in the presence of a numerous assemblage of soldiers and settlers, who had come from the military posts and the nearest plantations to join in the festivities. All was gladness and hilarity, the hospitality was bounteous, the company joyous, the bridegroom brave and manly, and the bride lovely as a wild rose. When the banquet was ready, the guests trooped into the room where it was spread, and even the sentinels who had been posted beside the muskets in the dooryard, seeing no signs of prowling savages, had entered the house and were enjoying the feast. Scarcely had they abandoned their post, when an ear-piercing war-whoop silenced in a moment the joyous sound of the revelers. The soldiers rushed to the door, only to be shot down. A few succeeded in recovering their arms, and made a desperate fight. Meanwhile, the savages battered down the doors, and leaped in at the windows. The bridegroom was shot, and left for dead, as he was assisting to conceal his bride, and a gigantic warrior, seizing the latter, bore her away into the darkness. After a short but terrific struggle, the savages were driven out of the house. But the defenders were so crippled by their losses, and by the want of arms which the enemy had carried away, that it was judged best not to attempt to pursue the Indians, who had disappeared as suddenly as they came. When the body of the bridegroom was lifted up, it was discovered that his heart still beat, though but faintly. Restoratives were administered, and he slowly came back to life, and to the sad consciousness that all could make life happy to him was gone for ever. The family soon after abandoned their new home and moved to Detroit, owing to the danger of fresh attacks from Pontiac and his confederates. Years rolled away. Young Philbrick, as soon as he recovered from his wounds, took part in the stirring scenes of the war, 
and strove to forget, in turmoil and excitement, the loss of his fair young bride. But in vain, her remembrance in the fray nerved his arm to strike, and steadied his eye to launch the bullet at the heart of the hated foes who had bereft him of his dearest treasure. And in the stillness of the night his imagination pictured her, the cruel victim of her barbarous captors. Peace came in 1763, and he then learned that she had been carried to Canada. He hastened down the St. Lawrence, and passed from settlement to settlement, but could gain no tidings of her. After two years, spent in unveiling search, he came back a sad and almost broken-hearted man. Her image, as she appeared when he last saw her, all radiant in youth and beauty, haunted his waking hours, and in his dreams she was with him as a visible presence. Months, years rolled away. He gave her up as dead, but he did not forget his long-lost bride. One summer's day, while sitting in his cabin in Michigan, in one of those beautiful natural parks, where he had chosen his abode, he heard a light step, and looking up, saw his bride standing before him, beautiful still, but with a chastened beauty which told of years of separation and grief. Her story was a long one. When she was borne away from the marriage feast by her savage captor, she was seen by an old squaw, the wife of a famous chief who had just lost her own daughter, and being attracted by the beauty of Miss Rouse, she protected her from violence, and finally adopted her. Twice she escaped, but was recaptured. The old squaw afterwards took her a thousand miles into the wilderness, and watched her with the ferocious tenderness that the tigress shows for her young. At length, after nearly six years, her Indian mother died. She succeeded then in making her escape, traveled four hundred miles on foot, reached the St. Lawrence, and after passing through great perils and hardships, arrived at Detroit. There she soon found friends, who relieved her wants and conveyed her to her husband, whom she had remembered with fondness and loved with constancy during all the weary years of her captivity. End of chapter 10